0: If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. We're going to be verse number 12 through verse number 21 today. As you're turning there, let me just say how excited I am and the entire do crew is to be in something like this with you. Now, I know when a guy comes up and says something like that, he may mean it about himself and maybe his wife. But when I include the whole do crew, you've got to be wondering, now, are the kids Really excited about Daddy being an interim pastor at First Baptist. And the answer is actually yes. We've loved our time as the presidential family of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and Level College. Uh, we've been traveling a lot. It's a great privilege and honor to go around to the churches of the SBC and to preach in a variety of different places every week. But as you can imagine for a group of little people being in the car that much on Sundays is a little tiring sometimes. And so this slows us down, gives us an opportunity to actually connect with the church family here in the city and keeps us tethered here. So this is a great joy. But as I said in the introductions just a few moments ago, I really do mean what I said. I believe that this is both a historic but also a strategic church. We need the churches of New Orleans to be strong and to be vibrant and to, to be operating as God equipped them to be. And it's been a pleasure to be down here in this part because we've discovered so many wonderful and fantastic churches, but this one is strategic for us, the people of God, to reach this city and to make an impact, not just in this city, but really everywhere our people will go. The ripple effect of what happens here in New Orleans can be huge and enormous, and if that's going to happen, then this this church, this one right here, First Baptist of New Orleans, has got to be strong moving forward as well, and I believe this. I really do. I'm not just saying this. I'm fully 100 percent optimistic that that is indeed the case. I've gotten to know a variety of the people on the search committee over the time, and I just want to say a kudos to them for, the, for their approach and how they're going about this. I'm confident that the Lord is and will honor that. So I'm blessed to be here with you today. Let's read together First Corinthians chapter or 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse number 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but "...give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again." Now, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he's given to us the ministry of Of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then perhaps one of the richest best, most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our great God, we pause before You this morning just to thank You for loving us. Thank You, Father, for redeeming us. Thank you, God, for giving us life doubly, both in creation and also again in redemption. You've made us your sons and your daughters. We stand before you this day, not at all, because we ourselves have anything to boast in. Father, we are what we are. We have what we have because of your great grace. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to be conformed to the image of your Son, that we would be a people that rightly understand what it is you've called us to be, who it is you've called us to be what it is, Father, you put before us to do. Bless this church, I pray, as myself and Bo enter into this interim season with them. Father, I pray that you'd be uh, with the committee as they seek and as they pray, that, Father, you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear who you are calling to be the pastor here of this church. And I pray, Father, that you would give this church, in the meantime, great strength and vibrancy, a time of flourishing. Now, this would be a time that people will again would invite friends and loved ones and that, Father, the church would grow even during this season. So we give ourselves to you to that end. We ask you to bless us. We love you and we adore you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I start off today with a very simple little question. The question is this. Can Christ really change us? And I ask that question, and of course, I know that as I ask that question, probably in most of our minds there will be the Sunday school answer or the theological answer That will immediately come up. The answer will be a resounding, yes, absolutely, Christ can indeed change us. But I want to press the question for just a moment, but for two reasons. Number one, I suppose that in a group like this, there have to be visitors here that are not yet Christians. I want to say to you, we are delighted and thrilled to have you here with us today. We can think of nowhere else in the world we would want you to be than coming and hearing about our Christ, our King. So we're glad to have you here. And so maybe if that's you, You're sitting here today, and I ask you this question about whether or not he can change us, and you're wondering that same type of thing. You hear people talk about Jesus, you hear people talk about the redemption that he can give and the life that he can give, and you might be somewhat skeptical about him. Is he just some kooky, crazy religious leader? That is indeed the way people would view Christ in the flesh. Or maybe you're here today and you're a believer and you have tasted, you have seen that the Lord is good. You've already encountered Him in so many different ways, but here's what happens in the Christian life. We don't mean for it to happen. We certainly try to fight against it in various ways, but the busyness of life, the rhythms of life do this to us. We find ourselves in ruts where certain types of habits and customs we get ourselves into and we have a hard time getting ourselves out of. And before we know it, there are certain types of sins in our lives that we just become accustomed to, comfortable with, and willing to accept as just the way that I am. Can Christ really change you? I mean, that's really what this whole thing is about, right? Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, of us. Jesus Christ, the redeemer of the broken. Jesus, the redeemer of the marginalized and those who've been pushed aside, those who have problems, those who are heavy laden, those who need a constant work of redemption. And oh, by the way, just so that we're all on the same pace, that is every single one of us, even still today, even if you've known Christ for decades and decades. We need Christ regularly, constantly in our lives, renewing us, and yet it is the way that we are sometimes. We just find ourselves maybe confessing one thing with our lips, but fleshing out something completely different. So I pressed the question here this morning, does Christ really have the ability to change us? Let me go back to you if you're, if you're wondering about this. You know, As I mentioned a minute ago, maybe you're a non-believer, you're here today, and you wonder, does Christ really have the ability to change me, or is he just that kooky religious leader? That is indeed the way people would view him in the flesh. Paul mentions that. He says, we used to regard him according to the flesh. What does that statement mean? He comes back now and he says, we thus regard him this way no longer. What does he mean by that? Paul is referencing a time when he thought one way of Jesus Christ is just a cult leader, a heretic, someone to be condemned that was not the Messiah. But then when he encountered him in Acts chapter 9, he came to realize that indeed Christ really was all of the things that the preacher said that he was. The Redeemer himself, and thus he regards him according to the flesh, No longer. Paul found out that Jesus really does have the ability to turn everything upside down and to change us. So let me walk through the text here today and just show you several things that the Apostle Paul reminds us that Jesus has the ability to change in our lives. Number one, verse number 17, Christ has the ability to change our character. Christ has the ability to change our character. That is the way that we are, the things that we are known for. Characters or characteristics are simply things true of objects. We might say of physical things like balls, like a ball is red or a ball is round. But when we talk about people, we talk about their moral nature. We talk about short-tempered or patient or kind. We talk about someone who's prone towards alcoholism or we talk about someone who is just Kind and gentle and gracious, and everything that they do. And so, when we talk about character, we're talking about the way people really are. And if the gospel does anything to us, if Christ does anything to us, he changes all of that. The Apostle Paul says in verse number 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen to this, he or she is a new creation. Paul is referencing this idea that believers have come to refer to as being born again. Jesus speaks about this. In John chapter 3, when a Christian, when someone comes to faith in Christ, what we find is that Jesus does more in our lives than simply getting us into heaven. We'll reference that when we get to verse 21. Jesus does more than simply forgive us of our sins. Listen, Jesus radically transforms us. Jesus loves us enough enough to redeem us in our brokenness and loves us enough not to leave us there. He says to us in verse number 17 that if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. Old things have passed away, but behold, all things have become new. Now, what exactly does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus eliminates all the consequences past choices. If you know my story at all, you know that I was not born with a Southern Baptist silver spoon in my mouth. I mean, this is not at all who I was. I was just a normal, ordinary kid from a blue-collar family in the rural parts of North Carolina, and we didn't go to church. I wasn't particularly good at anything whatsoever, (laughs) not at athletics, certainly not at school or anything like that. And my parents split up when I was about seven years old. I I could say an awful lot about that right now, but I'll just tell you this. This absolutely crushed me and rocked me. In the years that would come after this, I found myself in all of the wrong things, doing all the wrong things with girls, doing all the wrong things with drugs and alcohol and partying. I certainly didn't do the worst possible things that somebody could do, but what I did do, I did with flair. I was really really good at being lost. I was really good at being a pagan, and I loved it, at least for a season. Things began to accumulate and mount on me where all of a sudden, you know how sin is. I mean, you could give the same types of testimony, right? Sin is the type of thing that does indeed please us and give us some kind of excitement or satisfaction for a season. That's why we're drawn to it. That's why we go back to it again and again and again. We believe that this thing is going to satisfy us, and so we go back to it again and again. But also we should say this about sin. Sin is the kind of thing that's like drinking ocean water. You find yourself in the ocean, you're parched and you're famished, you have nothing to drink, and it's oh so tempting to drink from the ocean water. And you can do it, and it will indeed make you feel better for just a few minutes. But because of the salt content of that water, you will quickly find yourselves... More thirsty, more famished, more parched than you were before you drank the water. That's the way sin is. And I encountered this as a very young man, 16, 17 years old, beginning to realize that these things that once used to give me such thrill and excitement, now all of a sudden didn't give me the same type of impact at all. In fact, not only that, they I found myself repeatedly after I would sin so greatly, empty, broken, and filled with shame. Things accumulated in my life and came to a head when I was a junior in high school I got arrested twice the first time I got arrested I got arrested for stealing seven cases of beer out of the back of a grocery store it was something we frankly did quite a lot to be honest with you we never stole that much but that day we got greedy we decided we were going to have a humdinger of a party and we stole seven cases of beer and we were getting ready for the weekend man we were going to party it up uh, We made a big ruckus leaving the back of the grocery store. The folks came back and saw us leaving, saw what we were doing, called the police. Twenty minutes later, my head is being thrown against the hood of my Jeep as the cop arrests us. I begin to realize in that moment that there's something wrong with me. (laughs) I begin to realize in that moment that my life is not going the way that I thought that it would. But hear me, it wasn't just... The forensic facts of it that bothered me. It wasn't just that I'd gotten arrested. Listen, it was there was a deeper story. It was a story of emptiness. It was a story of brokenness. It was the story of shame. It was the story of loneliness. It was the story of realizing that I didn't. Something's desperately wrong with me. I wasn't a Christian. I had no idea about the truths of the Bible or theology. But I found myself using this kind of language. I would say to my friends, "There's something wrong with me. I just feel lost." Things would come to to a head again a few weeks later. This time I got arrested a second time for smoking pot in my Jeep as I was going down the road. That was October 9th, 1994. And I remember sitting in the cop car that night, high out of my mind with no hope whatsoever. And I looked at the cop and I told him, I said, I'm going to move to Raleigh tonight to live with my father. I did. That very night I moved to Raleigh and God began a process in me of humbling me, bringing me low, helping me see my desperate, desperate need for Him. June sixteenth, 1995, of all places in the world, for a Christian philosopher to get saved, I got saved at a centrifuge youth camp with all the hype and all the silly things that people pick on for youth ministry. It was all there and God used it in a very real, real way. I threw myself onto Jesus Christ and I can tell you as one who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, walking with Him now for 24 years, Oh, He has the ability to change everything, not just to redeem my soul, but listen to it, to change my character. Listen to how the Bible will describe this in Galatians chapter chapter 5. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. Listen to it. It's a familiar passage, so don't flip and read. Just listen to it. The fruit of the Spirit. Stop right there. Time out. What does it mean to talk about fruit of the Spirit? It means that, listen, when, when Christ is yours... When the Holy Spirit is born inside of us, Ephesians chapter 1 talks that way. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are born again and now the Holy Spirit indwells us. And when that happens, here's the deal. When something is alive inside of you, it grows. And it bears fruit. And what is that fruit exactly? Paul metaphorically describes the outflow of the Spirit of God in our lives. And let me just be clear about this. These things that result, this fruit that results does not come, hear me, this is so essential. It does not come from us trying harder. It doesn't come from us white-knuckling and doing our dead-level best to be better or to do better. No, 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 no. It happens and it results because the Spirit of God takes residence in your heart, in your very being, and He begins to grow and flow out of you. That's what He means by the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, what are they? But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Listen to this. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. So, what does that mean exactly? Here's the kind of way that the Spirit of God alive in us, now that we're children of His, begins to change our character. Listen to this hatred. Let's be honest about it for a second. Isn't that a very natural default disposition for us? Don't we find it very easy to hate? Hate perhaps someone who's hurt you. Hate perhaps someone who's abused you, mistreated you, misspoken about you. It's just our natural disposition to hate. But look, that is not the evidence of the Spirit of God inside of us. Listen, hate is replaced by love. And again, it's not because you just try harder. It's not that you white-knuckle love to come out. No, the Spirit of God's alive in you and it flows out. Hate is replaced by love. Despair, also something that's very easy for us to do. It's my natural disposition to lose hope and worry. But the Spirit of God in me brings something different. Despair is replaced by joy. Restlessness, the the inability to stop struggling and striving, restlessness is replaced by peace. Anxiousness is replaced by long-suffering. Rudeness is replaced by kindness. Malice is replaced by goodness. Infidelity is replaced by faithfulness. Hostility is replaced by gentleness. And weakness is replaced by self-control. That's what it looks like to have your life redeemed. What the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is this, that if any of us are in Christ, understand this. What he doesn't say here is, if any of us go to church. What he doesn't say here is, if any of us do good Christian works. No, he uses the language of, if any of us are in Christ. That suggests something to us, folks. It suggests a relationship. It suggests an intertwinement. That if I'm so related, so in communion with Christ, abiding with Him and Him abiding with me, that when I have that, listen to this, I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. There may still indeed be consequences of my sin. You know those arrests I talked about? I was on probation for a long time. Even after coming to faith in Christ, there are some things that may walk with me the rest of my life. But I have now been made new. If we are in Christ, He changes our character. Second thing I want you to see. Verse number 14 and 15, and then again in verse number 18 through 20. Christ not only changes our character, Christ changes our purpose and our mission. In other words, the orientation of my life now changes. It's not just that when I come to faith in Jesus, He changes the qualities about me. He changes also, in addition to that, the very direction of my life. Think of yourself, think of myself, think of all of us for a second. Let me give you two maybe just metaphors or or thoughts, analogies to think about for this. Think of each of us as an arrow. An arrow that will be shot, pulled back in the bow and shot. Christ changes the very trajectory of what it's going after. Think of ourselves in another way. Think of us as ships in the sea. I'm a ship in the sea, and you're a ship in the sea. And listen, each of us moves towards something, and each of us creates for ourselves a wake that other people will swim in our wake. I think about, this is a good metaphor, by the way, to think about as a father or as a mother, as a parent, listen to me, you're a ship in the sea creating a wake, and your little people swim in that wake. And they will be blessed by how you live, or they will be cursed by how you live. So parents, get it right. Give yourself to Christ and point it at the right thing. This is what the Apostle Paul is now going to show us Christ does. He changes not only my character, he changes also, in addition to that, my mission and my purpose in life. Verse 14. For the love, listen to this, watch this, the love of Christ Compels us. Can I just stop here and say this? Of all of the emotions, love is the strongest. It's stronger than fear. It's stronger than hate. Of all of them, it is it is the strongest. Of all the qualities, of all of the actions, love is the strongest. First Corinthians chapter thirteen as a reference. The love of Christ. This thing that we have encountered that is so revolutionary. This love of Jesus that has transformed us and completely converted us. It, that love, now compels me. Have you ever been compelled to do something? I know I sure have. I've been in those moments where I felt just compelled that I had to say something. I can remember what it was like when I fell in love with my wife. I was compelled to pursue her with everything in my being. Now the Apostle Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. In other words, it creates within us a disposition, an emotion, a push that pushes us forward that causes us to strive now in a particular way watch how he describes what it does for the love of Christ it now compels us because we judge this that if one died for all then all died verse 15 and he did die for all of us why watch he died for all so that those who live that's you and me and by the way you are alive yeah, is that ever, you ever pause to wonder about that why am I alive? <laughs> why did God bother with a jamie Do? Why did God bother with a you? Why, why did He create us? And I mean individually. Why is there a you? And why has He allowed you to persist up to this point? What is this all about? Well, the Apostle Paul is about to tell you. He died for all that those who live, watch this, should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, doesn't the Apostle Paul put his finger on the nature of the problem right here, doesn't he? What is my biggest problem? What is your biggest problem? It's simply this. Selfishness. I can trace almost any difficulty, any problem that I've got in my relationships, in the workplace, in my career, in my family to one simple word selfishness. It's when I put myself, my wants, my desires, my kingdom, which I am so prone to live my life for. Each of us does this. It's called the idol of our own name. And boy, do we bow down to it and worship it. We care very deeply about our success. We care very deeply about our station or place in life. We care very deeply about how we are esteemed or treated. The Apostle Paul says, shatter it. Crucify it. Why? Because Christ himself has been crucified. Verse 15, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but watch this, but for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, listen to me, Christian. This is what I want you to see. Christ changes my mission and purpose. Look, when you come to faith in Christ, everything gets turned upside down. Once again, the night I got saved, I can remember this. I remember June 16, 1995. That night, I didn't grow up in a church. I didn't grow up with all the jargon. I didn't know about you know the practices of Christianity and all those things. But that very night, I knew two things. I knew that, number one, I was home in Christ. Number two, I knew that I would spend the rest of my life doing this. I didn't know what this meant. I certainly never imagined the things that I'm doing right now for Christ but I knew that I would give my life for Him, to proclaim Him, to preach Him, to do whatever I have to do, to leverage my life for Him and His cause. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying we do now. Now look at verse quick, verse 18 through 20 real quick. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself, and He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Wow, what does that mean? Well, two things. He goes on to say, In verse number 19, that is that God was in Christ in the world, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ were pleading through us. Let me just say two things about this very quickly. Number one, we are reconcilers. That means my job is to recognize the brokenness and the alienation of lost people from God. My Redeemer, my King Christ, these people are alienated from. And it is my job, it is your job, it is the body of Christ's job to work as reconcilers in this world, bringing those who are marginalized and away from Christ to Christ. That's what it means to be a reconciler. He gives us another metaphor to think about ourselves. That that is the metaphor of ambassadors. Now let me just very quickly, what's an ambassador? Ambassadors are people that go to a foreign land, And there in that foreign land, they represent the interests of their king and his kingdom. They're not comfortable there, perhaps. They feel weird and out of place at times. But their job is to be there to represent the interests of our king. Understand this. The Christian faith is deeply political. I don't mean political in a Republican-Democrat type of way, though, of course, there are implications there. No, 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 it's political in this way. Our kingdom is about one king. You see the politics of that? This is about a king. This is about a kingdom. This is about a throne. This is about a rule. And our job in this foreign land is to represent in this foreign land the interests of our king. It is to announce the coming of our king and to urge those of this land to enter into His kingdom. My life, not just my character, but now the very mission and purpose of my life is turned upside down, and I am to give my life for the cause of Jesus Christ, and that is you too. Let me make one more point here this morning, and we'll be done. Thirdly, and finally, there's this question. Let me let me let me set this last point up with a question, Jamie. You're saying to us, "Hey, you're now to change your habits." No, I'm saying Christ is going to change your habits. You're saying I'm to change my mission and purpose? No, I'm saying Christ has already changed those things. Now, we do have to admit that this is a reorientation of life. And we have to admit it is a reorientation of life away from things that we want to keep our hands on. Right? Let's be honest about it. Does Christianity, does Christ call you to let go of some things? Yep. Yes, in fact, I'd say it this way. Christ expects from you, and Christ expects from me, absolute, complete, 100% obedience. And he calls us to let go of things. Now, with that in mind, perhaps there is at times a protest in our hearts. God, what's in it for me? Why should I do this? Verse 21. Verse 21, the Apostle Paul reminds us of what Christ has done for us. And now logically speaking, in my mind, I would say, well, maybe verse 21 is where we should have started in the first place. I'm just trying to honor the structure of the text. Verse 21, this is why we do this. This is why my character gets changed. This is why my mission and purpose in life gets changed. And it goes from being all about me to being not at all about me at all. And everything to do about Jesus Christ. Why? Because of verse 21. For he, that is the Father, made Him, that is Christ, who knew no sins. Pause right there. This is the gospel message. Some theologians have noted that this is perhaps the very best statement in the Scriptures to talk about substitutionary atonement. That God the Father would take the perfect spotless Son, who had no sin, who knew no sin, for He made Him who knew no sin, watch this, to be sin for us, that we who are sinners might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. Christ says to me, Christ says to you, quite literally, let me have your sin. Let me have your death. Let me have your condemnation. Let me have your mockery, your scorn. Let me have your rejection. Let me have all of that. And let me put it on my own shoulders. And He marched straight to the cross. Where it was nailed to the cross for you and for me. And now what's in it for me? That the very, that we might become, listen to this, the righteousness of God in Him. Wow. He has taken from me my shame and my sin, and He has given to me His righteousness. I think sometimes one of the biggest problems we've got in the church is that we have forgotten What Christ has done for us. Brothers, sisters, I don't yet know your stories. I look forward to being with you and to get to know some of your stories. But don't you ever forget. Don't you forever forget that night, that morning, that afternoon, whenever it was, wherever it was, whatever it was that you were doing, when you realized in that moment your brokenness, your sin, your shame. Don't forget that moment when you were overcome with, you were overwhelmed by the reality of your sin and you felt that moment of despair. And then whatever you do, don't ever, ever, ever forget that Christ, who knew no sin, took that for you and you took from Him His righteousness. Why do I do any of this stuff? Why do you do any of this stuff? It's because we stand as men and women who've been redeemed by Christ. And that, my dear friends, changes everything. Can He change us? Yes. Let me finish it this way. If you're here today, as I mentioned, and you're not a believer, we're thrilled you're here. We want you here again and again and again. Even if today you don't respond, we want you to come back again and again and again. But you wonder, does Christ really have the ability to change me? I'm telling you right now as one who's tasted it himself, yes. Yes and yes. Maybe you're a believer here today, and you affirm with me everything I've just said. You've given me the Sunday school answer in your heart. I'm asking you to look at something different in your life. Look for just a moment, if you will, At those patterns in your life, at those habits in your life that you know take you away from Christ. That you know are not honoring and pleasing to Him. Now I ask you this question, why are they patterns? Why are they habits? Why have they been given the place that they've been given in your life? Can Christ change that? And if that's true, there's only one reason they'll remain. And that's because we want them to. Father, help us to be obedient to you in all things. To love you well with our whole being, with our whole heart. Thank you, Father, that you have indeed worked such that you are in the business of changing us. Bless us now as we go. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you. And help us to respond obediently to you in your leading. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.